Section Four of the Call of the Canyon by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part Two. You, he cried, and leaped at her with radiant face. Carly not only did not care about the spectators of this meeting, but forgot them utterly. More than the joy of seeing Glenn, more than all the self-satisfying assurance to her woman's heart that she was still beloved, welled up a deep, strange, profound something that shook her to her depths. It was beyond selfishness. It was gratitude to God and to the West that had restored him. Carly, I couldn't believe it was you, he declared, releasing her from his close embrace, yet still holding her. Yes, Glenn, it is I, all you've left of me, she replied tremulously, and she sought with unsteady hands to put up her disheveled hair. You, you big sheep herder, you Goliath. I was never so knocked off my pins, he said, a lady to see me from New York. Of course it had to be you, but I couldn't believe. Carly, you were good to come. Somehow the soft, warm look of his dark eyes hurt her. New and strange indeed it was to her, as were other things about him. Why had she not come west sooner? She disengaged herself from his hold and moved away, striving for the composure habitual with her. Flo Hutter was standing before the fire, looking down. Mrs. Hutter beamed upon Carly. Now let's have supper, she said. Reckon Miss Carly can't eat now after that hug Glenn gave her, drawled Tom Hutter. I was some worried. You see, Glenn has gained seventy pounds in six months, and he doesn't know his strength. Seventy pounds, exclaimed Carly gaily. I thought it was more. Carly, you must excuse my violence, said Glenn. I've been hugging sheep. That is, when I shear a sheep, I have to hold him. They all laughed, and so the moment of readjustment passed. Presently Carly found herself sitting at table, directly across from Flo. A pearly whiteness was slowly warming out of the girl's face. Her frank, clear eyes met Carly's, and they had nothing to hide. Carly's first requisite for character in a woman was that she be a thoroughbred. She lacked it often enough herself to admire it greatly in another woman, and that moment saw a birth of respect and sincere liking in her for this western girl. If Flo Hutter ever was a rival, she would be an honest one. Not long after supper, Tom Hutter winked at Carly and said he'd reckoned on general principles that it was his hunch to go to bed. Mrs. Hutter suddenly discovered tasks to perform elsewhere, and Flo said in her cool, sweet drawl, somehow audacious and tantalizing, "'Sure you two will want to spoon.' "'Now, Flo, Eastern girls are no longer old-fashioned enough for that,' declared Glenn. "'Too bad. Reckon I can't see how love could ever be old-fashioned. Good night, Glenn. Good night, Carly.' Flo stood an instant at the foot of the dark stairway, where the light from the lamp fell upon her face. It seemed sweet and earnest to Carly. It expressed unconscious longing, but no envy. Then she ran up the stairs to disappear. "'Glenn, is that girl in love with you?' asked Carly, bluntly. To her amaze, Glenn laughed. When had she heard him laugh? It thrilled her, yet nettled her a little. "'If that isn't like you,' he ejaculated, "'your very first words after we are left alone. It brings back the East, Carly.' probably recalled a memory will be good for you, returned Carly. But tell me, is she in love with you? 
"'Why, no, certainly not,' replied Glenn. "'Anyway, how could I answer such a question? "'It just made me laugh, that's all.' "'Huh. I can remember when you were not above making love to a pretty girl. "'You certainly had me worn to a frazzle before we became engaged,' said Carly. "'Old times, how long ago they seem. "'Carly, it sure is wonderful to see you.' "'How do you like my gown?' asked Carly, pirouetting for his benefit. "'Well, what little there is of it, it's beautiful,' he replied with a slow smile. "'I always liked you best in white. Did you remember?' "'Yes, I got the gown for you, and I'll never wear it except for you.' "'Same old coquette, same old eternal feminine,' he said half sadly. "'You know when you look stunning. But, Carly, the cut of that, or rather the abbreviation of it, inclines me to think that the style for women's clothes has not changed for the better in fact it's worse than two years ago in paris and later in new york where will you women draw the line women are slaves to the prevailing mode rejoined carley i don't imagine women who dress would ever draw a line if fashion went on dictating but would they care so much if they had to work plenty of work and children inquired glenn wistfully glenn Work and children for modern women? Why, you are dreaming, said Carly with a laugh. She saw him gaze thoughtfully into the glowing embers of the fire, and as she watched him, her quick intuition grasped a subtle change in his mood. It brought a sternness to his face. She could hardly realize she was looking at the Glen Kilbourne of old. Come close to the fire, he said, and pulled up a chair for her. Then he threw more wood upon the red coals. You must be careful not to catch cold out here. The altitude makes a cold dangerous, and that gown is no protection. Glenn, one chair used to be enough for us, she said, archly standing beside him. But he did not respond to her hint, and, a little affronted, she accepted the proffered chair. Then he began to ask questions rapidly. He was eager for news from home, from his people, from old friends. However, he did not inquire of Carly about her friends. She talked unremittingly for an hour before she satisfied his hunger. But when her turn came to ask questions, she found him reticent. He had fallen upon rather hard days at first out here in the West. Then his health had begun to improve, and as soon as he was able to work, his condition rapidly changed for the better, and now he was getting along pretty well. Carly felt hurt at his apparent disinclination to confide in her. The strong cast of his face, as if it had been chiseled in bronze, the stern set of his lips and the jaw that protruded lean and square-cut, the quiet masked light of his eyes, the coarse roughness of his brown hands, mute evidence of strenuous labors, these all gave a different impression from his brief remarks about himself. Lastly, there was a little gray in the light brown hair over his temples. Glenn was only twenty-seven, yet he looked ten years older. Studying him so, with the memory of earlier years in her mind, she was forced to admit that she liked him infinitely more as he was now. He seemed proven. Something had made him a man. Had it been his love for her, or the army service, or the war in France, or the struggle for life and health afterwards? Or had it been this rugged, uncouth West? Carly felt insidious jealousy of this last possibility. She feared this West. She was going to hate it. She had womanly intuition enough to see in Flo Hunter a girl somehow to be reckoned with. 
Still, Carly would not acknowledge to herself that his simple, unsophisticated Western girl could possibly be a rival. Carly did not need to consider the fact that she had been spoiled by the attention of men. It was not her vanity that precluded Flo Hunter as a rival. Gradually, the conversation drew to a lapse, and it suited Carly to let it be so. She watched Glenn as he gazed thoughtfully into the amber depths of the fire. What was going on in his mind? Carly's old perplexity suddenly had rebirth, and with it came an unfamiliar fear which she could not smother. Every moment that she sat there beside Glenn, she was realizing more and more a yearning, passionate love for him. The unmistakable manifestation of his joy at sight of her, the strong, almost rude expression of his love, had called to some responsive but hitherto unplumbed depths of her. If it had not been for these undeniable facts, Carly would have been panic-stricken. They reassured her, yet only made her state of mind more dissatisfied. Carly, do you still go in for dancing? Glenn asked presently, with his thoughtful eyes turning to her. Of course I like dancing, and it's about all the exercise I get, she replied. Have the dances changed again? It's the music, perhaps, that changes the dancing. Jazz is becoming popular. And about all the crowd dances now is an infinite variation of foxtrot. No waltzing? I don't believe I waltzed once this winter. Jazz, that's a sort of tin panning, jiggling stuff, isn't it? Glenn, it's the fever of the public pulse, replied Carly. The graceful waltz, like the stately minuet, flourished back in the days when people rested rather than raced. More's the pity, said Glenn. Then, after a moment, in which his gaze returned to the fire, he inquired rather too casually, Does Morrison still chase after you? Glenn, I'm neither old nor married, she replied, laughing. No, that's true. But if you were married, it wouldn't make any difference to Morrison. Carly could not detect bitterness or jealousy in his voice. She would not have been averse to hearing either. She gathered from his remark, however, that he was going to be harder than ever to understand. What had she said or done to make him retreat within himself, aloof, impersonal, unfamiliar? He did not impress her as lover-like. What irony of fate was this that held her there yearning for his kisses and caresses as never before, while he watched the fire and talked as to a mere acquaintance and seemed sad and far away? Or did she merely imagine that? Only one thing could she be sure of at that moment, and it was that pride would never be her ally. Glenn, look here, she said, sliding her chair close to his, and holding out her left hand, slim and white, with its glittering diamond on the third finger. He took her hand in his and pressed it and smiled at her. Yes, Carly, it's a beautiful, soft little hand, but I think I'd like it better if it were strong and brown and coarse on the inside from useful work. Like Flo Hutter's? queried Carly. Yes. Carly looked proudly into his eyes. People are born in different stations. I respect your little western friend, Glenn. But could I wash and sweep, milk cows and chop wood, and all that sort of thing? I suppose you couldn't, he admitted, with a blunt little laugh. Would you want me to, she asked. Well, that's hard to say, he replied, knitting his brows. I hardly know. I think it depends on you. But if you did do such work, wouldn't you be happier? 
Happier? Why, Glenn, I'd be miserable. But listen, it wasn't my beautiful and useless hand I wanted you to see. It was my engagement ring. Oh, well, he went on slowly. I've never had it off since you left New York, she said softly. You gave it to me four years ago. Do you remember? It was on my twenty-second birthday. You said it would take two months' salary to pay the bill. It sure did, he retorted with a hint of humor. Glenn, during the war, it was not so, so very hard to wear this ring as an engagement ring should be worn, said Carly, growing more earnest. But after the war, especially after your departure west, it was terribly hard to be true to the significance of this betrothal ring. There was a letdown in all women. Oh, no one need tell me. There was. And men were affected by that and the chaotic conditions of the times. New York was wild during the year of your absence. Prohibition was a joke. Well, I got it, danced, dressed, drank, smoked, motored, just the same as the other women in our crowd. Something drove me to. I never rested. Excitement seemed to be happiness. Glenn, I'm not making any plea to excuse all that. But what I want you to know, how under trying circumstances, I was absolutely true to you. Understand me, I mean true as regards love. Through it all, I loved you just the same. And now I'm with you, it seems, oh, so much more. Your last letter hurt me. I don't know just how, but I came west to see you, to tell you this, and to ask you, do you want this ring back? Certainly not, he replied forcefully, with a dark flush spreading over his face. Then you love me, she whispered. Yes, I love you, he returned deliberately, and in spite of all you say, very probably more than you love me. But you, like all women, make love and its expression the sole object of life. Carly, I have been concerned with keeping my body from the grave and my soul from hell. But dear, you're well now, she returned with trembling lips. Yes, I've almost pulled out. Then what is wrong? Wrong with me or you, he queried with keen enigmatical glance upon her. What is wrong between us? There is something. Carly, a man who has been on the verge as I have been, seldom or never comes back to happiness. But perhaps... You frighten me, cried Carly, and rising, she sat upon the arm of his chair and encircled his neck with her arms. How can I help it if I do not understand? Am I so miserably little? Glenn, must I tell you? No woman can live without love. I need to be loved. That's all that's wrong with me. Carly, you are still an imperious, mushy girl, replied Glenn, taking her into his arms. I need to be loved, too. But that's not what is wrong with me. You'll have to find it out yourself. You're a dear old sphinx, she retorted. Listen, Carly, he said earnestly, about this love-making stuff. Please don't misunderstand me. I love you. I'm starved for your kisses. But... Is it right to ask them? Right. Aren't we engaged? And don't I want to give them? If I were only sure we'd be married, he said, in a low, tense voice, as if speaking more to himself. Married, cried Carly, convulsively clasping him. Of course we'll be married. Glenn, you wouldn't jilt me. Carly, what I mean is that you might never really marry me, he answered seriously. Oh, if that's all you need to be sure of, Glenn Kilbourne, you may begin to make love to me now. It was late when Carly went up to her room, and she was in such a softened mood, so happy and excited and yet disturbed in mind, 
that the coldness and darkness did not matter in the least. She undressed in pitchy blackness, stumbling over a chair and bed, feeling for what she needed, and in her mood this unusual proceeding was fun. When ready for bed, she opened the door to take a peep out. Through the dense blackness, the waterfall showed dimly opaque. Carly felt a soft mist wet her face. The low roar of the falling water seemed to envelop her. Under the cliff wall brooded impregnable gloom. But out above the treetops shone great stars, wonderfully white and radiant and cold, with a piercing contrast to the deep clear blue of sky. The waterfall hummed into an absolutely dead silence. It emphasized the silence. Not only cold was it that made Carly shudder. How lonely, how lost, how hidden this canyon. Then she hurried to bed, grateful for the warm, woolly blankets. Relaxation and thought brought consciousness of the heat of her blood, the beat and throb and swell of her heart, of the tumult within her. In the lonely darkness of her room, she might have faced the truth of her strangely renewed and augmented love for Glenn Kilbourne. But she was more concerned with her happiness. She had won him back. Her presence, her love, had overcome his restraint. She thrilled in the sweet consciousness of her woman's conquest. How splendid he was! To hold back physical tenderness, the simple expression of love, because he had feared they might unduly influence her, he had grown in so many ways. She must be careful to reach up to his ideals. That about Flo Hutter's toil-hardened hands, was that significance somehow connected with the rift in the lute? For Carly admitted to herself that there was something amiss, something incomprehensible, something intangible that obtruded its menace into her dream of future happiness. Still, what had she to fear so long as she could be with Glenn? And yet, there was forced upon her, insistent and perplexing, the questions. Was her love selfish? Was she considering him? Was she blind to something he could see? Tomorrow and next day, and the days to come, held promise of joyous companionship with Glenn. Yet likewise, they seemed full of a portent of trouble for her, or fight an ordeal of lessons that would make life significant for her. End of chapter 2, part 2